This podcast is brought to you by Kevin Cruz, the author of a new book entitled Great Leaders Have No Rules, Contrarian Leadership Principles to Transform Your Team and Business. Please listen to podcast number 705, where Kevin and Greg discuss the 10 rules that have been developed by Kevin that really transforms how a leader functions and performs with their teams and employees. Kevin's book has one purpose, to teach you how to be both the boss everyone wants to work for and the high achiever every CEO wants to hire, all without drama, stress, or endless hours in the office. If you follow these rules, you are bound to change your leadership style for the better. Join Kevin and Greg on podcast number 705, where you will learn more about the rules, as well as a bonus that Kevin is offering to all of the listeners of this podcast. We hope you enjoy podcast number 705 with author Kevin Cruz about his new book, Great Leaders Have No Rules. To learn more about the book and to see Kevin's special offer, please visit www.norulesleadership.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Rashawn and Stephen, I always like to thank my listeners. As both of you know, when you do a podcast show, as long as I have for 14 years, um, you get thousands of listeners and people that support you from around the world. And I always thank them uh, because they help me to decide who comes on the show. And I help them by bringing them great content like the two of you guys. And we have two authors joining us today. Um, one I know is joining us from New York. And Stephen, where are you joining us from? I'm in Montclair, New Jersey. Montclair, New Jersey. So probably not that far away, right? Not at all. Not <laughs> okay. at all. And we're going to be speaking about their new Wiley book called Make Yourself Clear, how to use a teaching mindset to listen, understand, explain everything, and be understood. And I have to give the backstory behind this, Rashawn. And that is that um, I woke up in the middle of the night looking for an application that would do graphic facilitation and I could do it over the internet and explain my concepts clearer. And I woke up at 4 a.m. And the reason I'm telling this story to the listeners is that I typed in. I think visual communication or something like that. I don't remember what it was exactly. I wish I did. And up pops explain everything. And there was a gentleman here in San Diego um, who was a representative for explain everything, which is Rashawn Richards uh, company. He founded that company. And so we have him on with us today. And at the end of this, there are going to be links to explain everything. And you're just going to have to listen really carefully to what Stephen and Rashawn have to say, because this platform is fascinating. The book is wonderful, and it's going to give you things you need to know to make yourself clearer in your communication. And gosh, only knows we could use that. So Stephen, I want to let everyone know a bit about both of you. And Stephen Valentine is an educator, school leader, writer, and serial collaborator. He serves as the assistant head, upper school, and director of academic leadership at Montclair Kimberly Academy. He is a a coordinating editor of King's Brief and the author of Everything But Teaching. And Rashad is the chief learning officer and co-founder of Explain Everything, Inc. 
and teaches at Teachers College, Columbia University and Columbia University School for Professional Studies. Together, Steve and Rashawn have co-authored numerous print and online publications, including 2016's Blending Leadership, Six Simple Beliefs for Leading Online and Off, and 2019's, the book we're talking about today, Make Yourself Clear, How to Use a Teaching Mindset to Listen, Understand, Explain Everything, and Be Understood. Well, welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Greg. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. Appreciate both of you. Now, for our listeners, obviously, you know, this book is called Make Yourself Clear, and you both contend that there are better ways to make yourself clear. What led you both to writing this book, Make Yourself Clear, and why is this such a passion for each of you? And let's start with you, Rashad. The book idea really came from what I was observing, especially the last four years when my main priority was, was the company Explain Everything and the, the people we were trying to serve. And coming from an education background, I was noticing so many parallels uh, in the intent and efforts of people in sales, in management, in customer service between those efforts, like I said, and what I had experienced in, in good teaching environments. And then I also felt that not enough people were able to articulate or describe the successful practices that people were doing or even really formulate why those things were working or not. And I started sharing these things that I was noticing with Steve, uh, who I've, as you know, I've worked on many projects with. And I said, I really think we have an opportunity to help a lot of people by very intentionally creating this link b- between what we know about good teaching and what we're seeing both as producers uh, on, on the business side, but also as consumers. And Stephen, for you, um, you know, it's interesting. You guys say state this in the book about the conundrum of using a book to actually try and teach this, right? And I'm using that word there. Because it is challenging you, you're putting it in words, but you're actually talking about visual learning. So Stephen, what kind of drove you to want to get involved in this project uh, with Rashad? Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for pointing that out about, you know, how difficult it is to um, communicate sometimes in words. I mean, that's that's why we're, we're having this conversation with you right now, because we realize that even though we wrote um, the clearest and best possible book that we could, we realize that we also have to now actively uh, try to connect with people and, and teach people and talk through the ideas. But I think for me, um, you know, coming directly from a school and I've never, you know, left a school the way that Rashan has, he's, he's branched out uh, beyond schools. And, you know, for me, if recently, for instance, I was watching um, my son play soccer and I was noticing the way the coach was helping the team, uh, the group of young people, to really um, accelerate their growth. And there was a field right next door, and then there was a lacrosse coach doing the same thing, and then there was a third field, and there was another soccer coach doing the same thing. And I had this moment where I realized that, you know, looking back on, you know, what was driving me to write the book is I realized that for many of us, um, we are last treated as learners when we graduate from school. And 
for, uh, for many of us, high school is the last time that anyone truly teaches us as a learner. Because in college, you know, some teachers, some professors are not really interested in teaching. Some of them are, but some of them are much more interested in research. And so for me, what's driving me and sort of what gets me up in the morning is this idea that if with this book we can simply remind um, adults to treat each other as if they are capable of learning, then I feel like we would have done uh, a good service because I, I just feel like the, the, the learning for too many people is turned off when they enter the corporate world. And so that that's what's driving me. And and I'd echo that. I would say learning probably happens in a different way in the corporate world. I, th I don't know what the statistic is. The two of you probably know this, but the number of people that actually pick up a book and read it after they leave high school or even college, uh, it's pretty fascinating. It's, it's a very high number of people that are not reading. Thus, I think the need for really creating something visual because we're so stimulated by these devices. And it kind of brings me to this question, Rashawn. You state that there's three dimensions to connection that are highly valued in today's fast-moving, information-rich, and highly automated society. I don't think I can echo that anymore. Can you let our listeners in on what they are and really why they're so important today to actually get our point across and be clear about it? You know, we, we use these three words, authenticity, immediacy, and delight as not only ways to describe what we think are useful approaches, methods, uh, perhaps even want to call them conditions for successfully communicating or moving an audience closer to understanding. And these are also qualities or conditions that exist in good teaching and learning environments in, in the institutional learning sense, uh, as well as in this idea that Steve was talking about, well, everybody's a learner and they learn best when they feel that, one, the learning is authentic. That means that it's, it's tied to something that they care about and more so somebody who cares about them is behind creating that experience. A lot of this, when we talk about authenticity, is around working in the face of increasing automation and increasing efficiency around how communication and teaching learning are done. And anybody can Google anything or sign up for this or that course, but if you don't feel there's a connection between the provider of that information or the person who's encouraged you to find some third-party resource, um, it's, it's very hard to intrinsically um, connect with, with, with that learning experience. So we, we always say that for any intended teaching or learning experience, there has to be this element of authenticity because if it feels inauthentic, um, and let's go out, and when we say teaching and learning, let me take a step back. We're not simply talking about in the classroom or corporate training or learning and development. I mean, just take when somebody, a seller of a service is trying to educate a prospective customer on what their organization is trying to sell to them. Right there, you've got a teacher and a, and a learner in very much an educative setting. And so if that customer does not feel like the person selling generally wants them to improve their life or their work or whatever they're doing by the product they're serving, 
it immediately rings inauthentic. And people are growing, not an immunity, but almost a very uh, finely attuned filter for, for that authenticity, given the abundance of, of, of automated things that, that they're encountering. And I want to make this note for our listeners. We're actually going to be putting up um, the visual note-taking that Rashad is doing during this. And uh, by the way, I'm actually watching it at the same time I'm speaking with both of these authors. So I think this will be a really interesting way for people to really learn, not just about explain everything, but about how visual learning really occurs. Now, um, Stephen, there's a section in the book, and it's in the first chapter, and it's on pursuing win-win-win scenarios. And you use a story in there about a researcher, Paul Slavic, who studied the effects of information on eight horse handicappers. Um, it does have a complete relation to this concept of, of us learning. Can you t tell the listeners what um, Dr. Slavic found and how this relates to increasing cer certainty? Okay. So this is a this is a pretty deep idea, and um, I'll try to I'll try to touch on it, you know, briefly, but also do it justice. You know, this was a study that happened at a racetrack where basically he was looking at uh, people who bet on horses for a living, right? So horse handicappers, and you know what what the study did is it basically um, brought these people together, and it started to give them. Uh, pieces of information to help them to make bets, essentially. So near the beginning of the study, they gave them all uh, a few pieces of information that they deemed useful, and they had them make bets. And throughout the course of the, the day, they would give them more and more information. So in the beginning, if they were giving them five pieces of information, near the end, they were giving them 40 pieces of information. Now, you would think that as you get more information, you would become better at placing successful bets. But what the study actually ended up showing is that some people improved, but not a lot of people improved. What changed in the experiment is that the more information that you gave to people, the more confident they became in their bets, which you know, you know where this is going you gain in confidence so you start to make increasingly you know larger bets without guaranteeing that the bets are actually better okay you're taking so, on more risk yes you're taking on more risk because mm -hmm. you're gaining you're gaining confidence mm -hmm. and so we use this story um the story of this experiment to sort of shake up our reader and to make them realize that if you are a teacher if you're entering into a situation where you hope to educate somebody, whether that's somebody that you're selling to or somebody that you're leading or, you know, somebody that you're in, in charge of connecting with in some way, that you have to pay attention to those moments where that person could be going wrong or could be um, overly confident or could be um, following um, a, a pattern of, of bias. And a really, really good teacher knows in advance where his or her students are likely to go wrong. And so you go into that class or that lesson or that sales situation, and if you're a really good teacher, 
you know, you're first going to try to understand where your learner is at, where your learner might be going wrong, where your learner might be carrying bias into the situation, and you are beginning to sort of try to rebuild understanding from that point. And so, again, it's, it's a little bit of a complicated scenario and a little bit of a complicated beginning, but it's this idea that a teacher is responsible for what is going on in the minds of the learner. And so you have to find your way in there and you have to make sure that you're, you're understanding potential uh, mishaps. And I think it's so important that they do understand. I guess the question I have for you, Stephen, is how do teachers, other than through experience of having done it so many times, really understand where the classroom is going? Whether And you can relate this to sales, too, because over time, salespeople develop certain biases and habits as a result of where they think or how somebody's going to answer a question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the same analogy holds true there as it does in the classroom. But what are those skill sets that are actually being developed to understand the direction that the classroom is taking or that the salespeople might, salesperson might be taking, yeah. or I should say the buyer might be taking? How's that? Yeah. So you, you've already kind of answered the question because in the beginning you said experience, right? So, you know, if I were coaching a teacher right now who was brand new, I, I would basically say once you've spent some time in the classroom, hopefully you're going to know where your students are likely to go wrong. But since you're, you're, you're newer to the classroom or to the field, the very best thing you can do is to prime yourself to be a very good listener. Um, and so whether that means collecting what we would call pre-assessment data, uh, where you're trying to sort of very quickly ascertain what your students know about a given topic, and so that you can then use that, or, you know, to just really create situations where you are actively able to listen to the person on the other side of the table or in the classroom, and then to reflect that listening back to them. And this is something that that hanging out with Rashawn, you know, he has taught me over the years that he's very good at reflecting his listening back to an audience. And so it's sort of this way to open up a dialogue between this is what I hear you saying and are we on the same page? So to answer your question, if you don't have experience of the field, that sort of deep experience then the very best thing you can do is to put yourself into the situation of just radically listening um, and then reflecting back what you're hearing so that you're aligning your understanding mm-hmm. with the person that you're working with. And so what Rashawn's doing right now with his live drawings, it's, it's just a very meta example of that because we're seeing what he is hearing and then right. we're able to fine tune that and align ultimately our understanding. And I remember that feedback loop, uh, even from my, when I got my master's in psychology, it was like, um, Stephen, what I heard you say was, and you repeat what you heard Stephen say, because it helps to clarify for the person that that's exactly what they were trying to communicate. So that feedback loop is so important. And Rashawn, you use a story in the book about being frustrated with automated service. Now, flipping to the business side of how people would communicate or what you call non-human service. 
How does humanizing help the situation? And what do people who are performing the service, meaning answering questions as you call into Google or you call into whoever it is, and you're trying to get help with something, need to know to better service their customers? What would you tell salespeople, people, uh, anyone out there listening today who's in a role or capacity of doing that, Rashad? This podcast is brought to you by Bill Adams and Robert Anderson, the authors of a new book entitled Scaling Leadership, Building Organizational Capability and Capacity to Create Outcomes that Matter Most. Please listen to podcast number 706, where Greg and Bill discuss the key differences between what Bill refers to as creative versus reactive leadership, which makes up the system for developing effective leadership throughout an organization. This interview is a must listen for any leader wanting to improve their leadership skills and to improve their relationship with their team members. If you want to learn more about scaling leadership, please listen to podcast number 706, as well as go to the book's website by visiting www www.scalingleadership.com or you can take a free leadership self-assessment at www.leadershipcircle.com Have fun learning a lot about becoming an effective leader by listening to Greg's interview with Bill Adams, the author of a new book entitled Scaling Leadership. Thanks for listening. I, I think that the most important thing is being really attuned to the emotional state that somebody calling in or trying to access any kind of client or customer support system would be in that's warning them to actually call in. And I've noticed a move made by many companies, especially in maybe the last year and a half or two that I, I hope to see scale, which is this. So many of us can uh, empathize or understand calling into uh, a, the support line of XYZ service, right? So uh, I'll give one that I'm constantly calling as my phone carrier right? And because I'm always making changes and updates. And then the typical pattern is you call in and you're given your series of menu choices and then you try to navigate it. And then at some point you're shouting representative because you've gotten too frustrated with the dial-in choices or you're hitting zero to try to bypass it. And all, all that's doing is creating this, this additional layer of kind of inhumanity to somebody who's obviously calling in because I couldn't do it on my own, right? And, or the company didn't think of it for me. So you can, you can take that uh, type of experience to, to many other types of service that, that people call into. But the move that I've been noticing are companies that have now instituted where you can request a call back. So when you dial in, right, you get presented with really good, immediate and authentic information. The wait time is gonna be 38 minutes, However, you can schedule a callback at your preferred window. So now the person calling in like, yes, of course you wish it could get solved immediately right then, but now you, all, you, want, you can start making some choice. You can say, do I want to wait for 38 minutes or do I want to now handle this on my own schedule and it not be an interruption, but rather something I've planned for. And it's, it's such a simple gesture and it's still completely automated, right? Both the calculating of the time and the scheduling of the, 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 the callback, but it's such a humane gesture because you're presenting choice to somebody at their moment of, of deep frustration. Yeah, it, you know, I, I get where you're going with that. They've actually pre-formatted how to work through the steps, you know, 
that one would take to get there. And the better companies with service have really thought through um, those steps that we all go through. And the ones that are very poor at it, um, I think what you end up doing is just taking your receiver and hitting the button on your cell phone and hanging up because uh, there is a high level of frustration with that. Now, Stephen, you discuss communication imperative in the book. And while writing the book, you spoke with an expert at the Vatican who used to be a teacher. And he commented that we need to take responsibility not only for the transmission of messages, but also for the extent to which those messages were received. How do we know people are receiving our transmissions the way that we would like for them to be understood? Well, there's a couple things here. And, you know, one is easy. Uh, I mean, the, the two that I'm thinking, one is easy and one is hard. So the easiest move that you would see in a classroom, and again, I keep going back to the classroom because that's really where I live. Um, what a teacher would call, you know, some kind of ticket to leave or ticket to, to transition. And so, you know, a, a good teacher is not going to be in a rush um, to move on until she knows what was received. And so let's say that right now we're in a classroom and it's about to end. Like we look up at the clock and we realize Jesus class is about to end. So, you know, a, a mediocre teacher is just going to call it a day and then go home and plan the next class and move on. But a really effective teacher is going to stop class a few minutes before, like look up at the clock and realize we have a few minutes. And so we're going to stop here and I'm going to have the class fill out something that reflects back to me where they are, what they learned, what they took from this discussion. Um, and so it kind of goes back to what I was saying before is, you know, trying to put learners in situations where they are reflecting what they heard back to you so that you can actually then take the time to to decide, like, is the class ready to move on? Is every student ready to move on? Or do I have to go back and do some more teaching? Um, do I have to spend more time on this? Or if one or two students aren't where they need to be, do I need to follow up with them? I consider that to be fairly easy, fairly mechanical, because any any human could do that in most, most situations. Um, What's harder, if we were to move to, um, let's say, uh, giving a speech, right? If, if, if your mode of teaching is to go out and talk to people, talk to groups, um, what a lot of people will do, especially when they're uh, either beginners or just very careful, is they're going to write down every word they're going to say. And then they're going to find a way to make sure that they can read that directly. And then that ensures uh, a baseline of performance, right? And again, you're thinking what you're doing. You're not thinking about your audience. You're thinking about what you're giving your audience. But what we have found is that, you know, the best speakers, the people who have the, the biggest impact on, um, you know, an audience, it's not that they're getting on stage and winging it, right? It's not that they're getting on stage and just whatever they feel they're saying. They're working very hard to pinpoint um, the necessary talking points, right? And they're putting in that, that effort to get there. But then when they're delivering it, they're not overly reliant on a script. They're actually paying attention to the people in the audience. Now, obviously you can't read their minds, but again, the difference between walking up on stage with 
a couple of index cards or the entire script written out, you know, we would encourage people to strive to be working off of index cards and paying attention to the people in the audience, reading their body language, looking at their faces, looking at their posture, and, you know, if need be, you know, asking a question, trying whatever you can to sort of pull them to you so that you're not simply allowing them to be passive. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you're, you're, Stephen, you're making the experience much more human, uh, much more alive, much more robust by utilizing those, um, <clears throat> I even hate to say techniques, but they are techniques that people develop over time to make them so much better at what they do. Um, and, and I get that. And that is that feedback loop. You know, you said the teacher stops to take um, some time to figure out where the class is, right? Um, yep. They connect with them. Uh, instead of having a written script, you know, they know the outline and they know what they want to deliver and they connect with them uh, through their eyes and their heart. And I think that's a really important one. And Rashad, in chapter on respecting the game, you use this analogy of a seesaw and the fact that we control the ride. You know, somebody can jump off of it and make the ride pretty miserable. Um, I had that happen when I was a kid. And I probably <laughs> did that to somebody else as well um, because I wanted to get back at them. <laughs> uh, you say that the trust and authenticity are imperative to make yourself clear. What do teachers, trainers, and speakers need to know to build trust, be authentic, and make themselves clear? I think when you go into any of those situations with a true respect that the other person is equally in, in it and has just as much invested in, in the success of that relationship. And you're constantly finding ways to make that apparent and clear and visual and audible to, to everyone involved. I think that's, that's how that trust is built. When we were talking earlier about this kind of reflecting, listening, or confirming understanding, um, yes, it helps to, to reinforce and close the feedback loop, but the, the other part of it is that it becomes a huge element of safety and trust because now you see here's a partner who's not only capable of listening, but is also able to interpret, understand it, and advance the relationship because of that listening. I, I've seen so many times where somebody going into like a, a sales situation just goes through their talking points really well refined, very clear, probably quite persuasive in different settings, but when it when there hasn't been any effort made to understand the person they're trying to sell to, um, it becomes very one-sided and there, there's no give and take. It's not conversational. It's not a dialogic. It, 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 it's absent of what, what's happening here. And you've got two people who are trying to get to some level of shared understanding and going back to this idea of win, 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 you're trying to get to a point where everybody is successful. The person selling something is successful because that is their job and they're, they're helping their company advance. The end user, the customer is successful because presumably because of what they've just purchased, they are going to live their life or do their job better. And then their shared context benefits, which is 
either the company or the industry that they are also both connected to because something positive has happened to improve the general quality of the work in there. And so that's where you've got the seesaw and the two participants involved. Yeah. And again, for it to be an equal balance so that that teeter totter is not um, uh, imbalanced, you need to have an opportunity to, to go back and forth. And I think that's the point of the seesaw is it is this back and forth communications um, so that you build trust, right? And you only build trust on that, um, that teeter totter when you, you're trusting that other person to kind of go back and forth and have a good ride and understand one another. Now, Stephen, in the chapter on selling with immediacy, um, you both mentioned that sales can be enhanced by the deepest underpinning of immediacy. And then I'm going to put in colon feedback. Um, we were just talking about feedback. Um, if you would speak to the listeners about the importance of feedback as it really relates to selling. I think that, you know, salespeople oftentimes have a one track uh, mind. They're trying to get to the close, right? Boom. I need to make the sale. Um, they're not always hearing what the buyer is saying, their concerns. Um, and they're not reflecting back the importance of that. What would you tell people out today who are selling, servicing, doing whatever it is, the importance of immediacy and the feedback loop? Well, you know, again, I, I in this case, my experience is from the side of someone who is often sold to or someone who is, you know, selling ideas to young people, right? Or to or to adults when I'm when I'm serving as a school leader. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, my caveat is that some of this is a little bit idealistic, right? Because you, you had just said that for a really hardcore salesperson, like getting to the close is important. My, my feeling is that I would always encourage people to be playing a longer game than that, right? Because if I close you once, if I sell something to you once, and then within six months, you feel like it was the wrong thing for you to buy. Um, or you feel like, oh, you know, I lost. Someone tricked me. Um, to me, that's worse than actually making a sale, right? Because in in my world, if I sell something to you once, then that's going to open the door for me to sell something more complex and transformative to you in the future right and you have to trust me for that to happen um, so the minute that we sort of get to a point where you know I sold you something because I tricked you or I sold you something because you know I use some kind of sales judo on you I feel like as a salesperson I've, I've actually lost you know because one of the things that we talk about in the book is that for instance in a service arrangement where whereby you know someone is selling you service to me one of the best things they can do is to sell you a sort of a lower level service but then teach you in that moment to say to you perhaps you know you really could handle this service yourself if you did x y and z because if you become good at at handling the low level service on let's say your your air conditioner at home then you're going to call the company when you have a much bigger, more complicated, complex job 
that requires trust and a and a large outlay of capital, right? So so again, I, I I'm you know not necessarily addressing your your question directly, but I think that if you build a a positive relationship and you are offering that person you know a degree of feedback or you're teaching them in the moment, you're empowering them, you know, then they're getting what they need from the relationship. So it's not just a single sale, but it's like a hopefully many many sales based on you know trust and feedback and learning and growth yeah and that that uh, that you mentioned is kind of the lifetime value of a customer right um, or client and it's a very important uh, element that you're speaking about because you know there's many sayings in many industries that you um, sell them once and they are a customer you sell them twice and they're a client. Um, you sell them the third time and they're a lifetime client, meaning that usually when you have three different sales to one person, the likelihood of them buying from you again and trusting you goes up um, quite a bit. So to move from customer client to a lifetime uh, confidant, the person that would trust you each time is really big. And that leads me to our last question here for you, Rashawn. And you discuss immediacy and that it's part of the condition of modern life. And I get that, that it's the new now that allows transactions big and small to happen when they are most meaningful and helpful. How do teachers, trainers, salespeople, whomever is listening to this podcast, utilize digital tools such as explain everything to help communicate more effectively and efficiently in this environment of immediacy? I, I think the key is that there, there becomes a human choice point because you can do so much with great efficiency, but efficiency doesn't always translate to effectiveness. And as we were talking about the, that, that kind of sales or customer progression, I think the choice that gets made is because of immediacy, you can actually try to address a huge potential first time customer base. And just based on your yield, even if it's a small percentage, the volume is high enough to on paper look like a good business. But then at the same time, there's not care for the 96% who didn't convert into, into second time or, or a third time buyers. And, and I think that becomes a choice. So it, it becomes like a, an economics um, examination really to see, you know, what, what's the, the financial viability of, of such a mindset. But from my opinion, and especially with explain everything, part of it is kind of trying to slow down and have higher quality human interactions. And our thesis is that because of that, these are going to be, that's one of in this modern world that's going to rise above the noise because automation is only going to increase abundance of information and channels and access to people and things all of that the volume of it is going to continue to go up and at some point there's going to be some new societal filters and norms on how people receive that information and our belief is those who turn back to these basic very human thoughtful practices, which is what we've seen in good teaching and learning um, situations, 
that that's what's going to help people be successful. And we've already seen it when we talk to individual leaders, sales leaders, uh, managers, corporate trainers, that they're finding that these things resonate with them, though they never fully maybe articulated, oh, this is why, that like actually we're, we're taking some really well, I'll, I'll say well-researched, but also kind of like uh, traditional and time-honored traditions from good progressive teaching um, that are being effective now in the modern work environment. Yeah, and I think as you've reflected through the book several different times, you know, uh, it is a winding road and you kind of end this book up, you know, we said we've come to the end of a long and winding class and we now invite you to think back and map how you find your way here, how you found your way here to this conclusion. And I think that it is frequently, and I will say this for me, it is the mapping. And I think if people take the time like you're doing, which our listeners are going to be able to see, is they're going to be able to see this map of the visual note taking that you've done. There is an extreme value um, with inside the neurons that are firing in the brain to make the connection and try and be extremely clear and concise about what you're attempting to communicate. Um, in the opportunity here, um, Steve and or Rashawn, are there anything the two of you would like to leave with the listeners that would like put a wrapper around this and say, hey, what we really want to communicate to you is this. And if you were to put that in, fill in the blanks, what would that be, Steve? So what we're really hoping to leave you with is you know, tomorrow when you when you go to your job and, you know, you're going to have certain functions that are, you know, most important to what you do. Um, I would love for people to experiment with imagining what the job would look like if you were teaching more during the job, during during the day, like during the sale, during your leadership what would the job look like? And I would love for people to try that and to let us know how it goes. And Rashawn? This might be more difficult to measure, but I would love for people to approach any kind of interpersonal relationship and conversation, a sales call, a meeting, any of those things that the person who has some authority or agency for making that thing happen, that their primary focus is that the recipient, the person on the other end, is going to be better off because that interaction happened. And no matter what it is, whether it's a sales pitch or a, a, a bit of compliance training or you know a guide on how to replace a filter on your air conditioner, any of those things that it's one thing just to do the work and check it off your list, but if you always approach it with the concern and the, the orientation towards, I want to make sure that that person doesn't just have a need met, but is actually going to be better off that I'm the person who helped them meet that need. Well, thank you to both of you for being on. And I think that one of your um, people who endorsed the book really kind of sums it up really would and the things that we've been talking about. And that's Nick Morgan, the president of Public Works, Inc., and the author of 
a can you hear me, how to connect with people in a viral world. And he says that both of these gentlemen have developed an innovative, fresh approach to selling that involves time-honored ideas from the world of teaching. Authenticity, immediacy, and delight are the keys to establishing strong sales relationships in the business world today. Uh, both these and gentlemen will show you exactly that. This book is a win-win-win. And I would say it is a win-win-win for all my listeners. We'll put links to not only this video that Rashad has been doing, but we're also going to have links to Amazon for the book. Uh, we'll have links to the book um, website as well. Um, so the book is called Make Yourself Clear, How to Use Teaching Mindset to Listening or I'm sorry, let me repeat that. How to use a teaching mindset to listen, understand, explain everything and be understood. And the authors are Rashawn Richards and Stephen Valentine. This is a Wiley book. We'll put links to add that to that. Thank you both for being on the show. Thank you for spending time to um, try the best way you could um, through words like we're doing here and some visuals to explain uh everything very clearly. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you, Greg. Thanks very much. It was yeah. a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Todd Rose, the author of a new book entitled Dark Horse, Achieving Success Through the Pursuit of Fulfillment. Please listen to podcast number 704, where Greg and Todd discuss the traits of what is referred to as a dark horse, someone who comes from behind and wins the race. Dark horses blaze their own trail to a life of happiness and prosperity and are focused on living a life of fulfillment. Todd profiles individuals, many of which you may or may not know for their names are not commonly recognized, but their accomplishments are truly phenomenal. Please listen to podcast number 704 to learn more about how dark horses come out on top. If you want to explore the author's website to listen to other interviews, talks, and to learn more about Todd's projects at Harvard's Mind, Brain, and Education program, please go to www.toddrose.com. Thanks for listening.